This chapter, Ephesians 2, concerns being saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, but not a barren salvation, but one that is unto good works. Here now the reading of God's holy word, Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." Thus far the reading of God's inspired word from Ephesians chapter 2. May the Lord bless the reading 
the hearing and the consideration of this chapter. Much could be said on this chapter. Verses 1 through 10, 10 tells us that we are saved by God's grace alone. We are justified and saved by faith alone. And that all this is unto the glory of God alone. And that this salvation leads to good works. Verse 1. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is a very interesting phrase. Antos necrus is the Greek. Antos is your state of existence. What you are. It's not like a habit that you acquire or a cold that you get or some weight you put on by eating. No, this is who and what you are. What are you? Dead, he says. Necrus, which literally means a corpse, a body without life. Like in Ezekiel's vision. Remember the valley of dry bones? And the Son of Man was told to speak the word of God. God says, when I quickened you, when I made you alive, you were a dead corpse. Oh, but don't I have to prepare myself for salvation? Don't I have to generate my own faith? Don't I have to do some good thing that the Lord will call me by his grace? What does a corpse do in order to gain favor? What exactly did Lazarus do to have Jesus come and call him forth out of the grave? Well, he was dead, and he was stinking, and his body was decomposing, and Jesus, by his almighty power and grace, said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. So us. You, he said, all of you Ephesians to whom I write, when you were in that state of spiritual death, he made you alive. He quickened you. That's what the word quicken means. Zoa poeo. Zoa is living. Poeo is to make or to do. He made you alive. He caused you to come to life. This is the gospel. Verse 2. Wherein in time past ye walked. You used to be the walking dead we talk about. Zombies, right? They're dead people who walk around. That's true of all of us by nature. We're like zombies. Spiritually dead, but walking around and living our lives in that state of spiritual death. We make a daily trade of our sin. It's like our job. We don't strive against it. We don't fight it. We live in it. That's what he says. According to the course of this world, literally the age of this world, God's Enmity is against this world, and the world is fighting against God. That's the spirit of the age that we live in. Not only the world and your deadness in sin in your flesh, but the devil himself, according to the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. You remember him walking around to and fro in the earth in Job's day, looking for some that he may devour, Peter tells us, and he's got his minions that rule, that he rules over. Well, guess what? When we are in our natural condition of spiritual death, guess who we're in dominion under? The devil, the prince of the power of the air. We do the will of the flesh and of the mind, he says in verse 3. Oh, you may be respectable before men, but it is the will of your mind if you're a cultivated, civilized person. Or the will of the flesh if you're a more base or lower person. But it's no different. It may appear different to men. 
It may be a splendid, beautiful sin that a person commits, but it's still a sin. It's still under the dominion of the devil. It's still under the worldly spirit. It's still under the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. We were, he says, by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This is an innate quality to be under the wrath of Almighty God in our natural condition in sin, David said, did my mother conceive me? The wicked go forth from their mother's womb speaking lies. Oh, but that's them. No, Paul says, that's you. You hath he quickened. You he made alive when you were in this very condition. This is good news. Because if you have to get yourself prepared and ready, you are without hope. There is no hope for you. You will never be good enough for the Lord. You are fallen and dead in trespasses and sins. And you think you're going to offer something to God? You think you're going to get yourself ready for the Lord? Where are man's preparations for his salvation? Where is his will to do what is spiritual good? Where is the supposed moral goodness we read about last week where Chrysostom said, well, God will choose you, but you got to be good first, and then God will choose you? No. Would you believe in Jesus Christ? Then stop believing in yourself. Distrust your own wicked heart and trust in Jesus instead. Verse 4. But... God, he says, this word but transitions from what he's been talking about, your state of spiritual death to what God has done for you. But God, who is rich in mercy, he says, for his great love wherewith he loved us, not our great love wherewith we loved him. We love him, why? Because he first loved us with this great love. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 5 tells us, hath quickened us together with Christ at the very moment of your spiritual death, he says, God made you alive. Remember Paul on the road to Damascus, breathing out threatening and slaughter against the disciples? What good thing did he do that he should inherit eternal life? What was it? Tell me. Was it the fact that he killed the disciples of Jesus? Or that he held the coats when they martyred Stephen, the disciple of Jesus, calling on the name of the Lord, throwing stones as if he's an idolater? Is that the good thing that Paul did? Paul did no such thing. And he says, you Ephesians, you're no different than me. It is by grace that you are saved, as I was. You cannot prepare yourself for Christ. Look to Jesus Christ, flee to him, and remember these words. But God, you did all of this wickedness. You were under the dominion of Satan. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked according to the wisdom of man and according to the desires of your flesh. But God... God did something about your condition because of his great love wherewith he loved us. This is good news. This is very good news. 
If I sold you that you had to do the good thing first and that you prepared yourself to come to Jesus and that it was your free will that brought you to him, I would be selling you a lie. I would be telling you that you weren't dead in your trespasses and sins, that you didn't walk according to the course of this world, that you weren't under the dominion of Satan, and I would be lying to you. Look to the Lord Jesus. Trust in the mercy of God, not in the work of yourself. And notice the apostle puts it in parentheses there in our translation, by grace ye are saved. Now, this is a very interesting term. Ye are saved. It is what we call a perfect passive participle. Now, a perfect verb means that it was accomplished in the past and the effects continue on to now and they go on into the future. If you can imagine a dot with a line coming out of it on into the future. The dot is the thing that happened in time past, or I should look at it, like this for you, this is the time past, and it goes on to now, on into the future, ye are saved. God saved you at a point in the past, and that salvation continues on to now, and that salvation will go on into eternity to be in the future. And not only that, it's passive, meaning it was done to you. You did not save yourself. You didn't save someone else. You were saved by God, and God preserves you in that state of salvation. I note then this doctrine that salvation is monergistic. M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-I-C. Monergistic. Monos is one, and ergos is a work. Your salvation and mine is the work of one. It is not the work of two or three or 75,000. God does the work of salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Monergistic. It is God's work to save. It's not your work. It's not my work. It's not the Pope's work. It's not the saint's work. It's not every individual who has faith's work. No, it is God's work. It is by grace that ye are saved. God does the saving, you are passive. God makes it stick, you don't. This is a rebuke to all versions of cooperation in our salvation between God and the sinner, between God and the sinner and the church, between God and the sinner and the saints and the church. No, all of this falls to the ground. There is no decision you will make to follow Christ. God decided that you would follow him. He saved you. You were passive. By grace, ye are saved. God did it. Do you believe? Yeah, of course. Did you choose to follow Christ? Yeah, of course. You choose to follow him every single day. Why? Because God chose you first. Because God saved you by his grace. Everything else is man saying, God, I want a little bit of the, the credit of this. You know, you can have 99.99999, God, but I want that point zero 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 one. Just, just a little bit? Come on, man. Didn't I make a difference between me and somebody else? Look at these people. They don't believe. But I believed. Why is that? By grace, ye are saved. You were dead in trespasses and sins, and God raised you up together, verse 6 tells us, 
co-resurrected with Christ. He made you to sit in the heavenly places. Let me just ask you a question. Did you raise yourself from the dead? Did you make yourself sit up in heaven with Christ? No. God, he says, he raised us up together. He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? That he might show the exceeding riches, verse 7 tells us, in the ages to come. That's why. That's God's purpose. He's going to show how rich his grace is, how great his mercy is, not how great man is. That's not the purpose of the gospel. Well done, good job, you gave your life to Jesus. That's blasphemy. You don't clap for a man who comes to Christ. You clap to God. Shout to God. He's the one who saves. And so the apostle tells us God's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness, he says, toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Yeah, but see, I contribute my faith, right, Pastor Adam? No. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is God's gift. In fact, the Apostle Paul, very interesting, listen to these words. Philippians 1.29 Unto you it is given, or graciously given, in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. First off, faith is my gift to God. <clears throat> Second off, suffering isn't a gift. <clears throat> Paul says both your faith is a gift of God and suffering for his name is a gift of God. Both of those are gifts that God gives to us. Now, how are my sufferings a gift? You might ask yourself. Well, do you want to be made conformable to the image of Jesus Christ? Do you want all the dross refined from that gold that God is working in you? Well, the fire's got to go up. The heat's got to be increased. If you want to be made like to his son, it happens through suffering. Often, that is the way that God works. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. That's what he told Paul when he had the thorn thrust into his flesh. And he prayed to God, please remove it. And the messenger of Satan came to buffet him. God told him, Paul, I'm working good for you in this suffering. This is my gift to you, Paul. Oh, but we have to believe that God will remove all of our sufferings. Well, do you want God to make you more like his son or not? Because if you want, if you pray, God, remove all my sufferings. You know what God says? Okay, then you won't be like my son. Is that what we want? No. And so God gives us graciously this gift of faith. It's not of ourselves. We didn't generate it by ourselves. It is graciously given to us on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for the sake of Christ. Not of works, he says, lest what? Any man should boast. You know you can turn faith into a work. Oh, look at this. I did this on this date. And this in response to my work of faith, God saved me. Oh, no, he didn't. God saved you 
when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and gave you the faith so that you could believe. Who gets the credit? God does. Not of works. Not works of Moses. Not works of Jesus. Not works that you do, whether under the commands of Christ or of Moses or of the law of nature or any religion that you believe in. Not the works of the woke to say, Oh, all or, or what is it? Black Lives Matter. You have to say that. Say it. Come on, say it. Say it. Say Black Lives Matter. Do the work, and then you'll be saved. Then we'll spare you. We won't send you to wokey hell where we cancel you and say you're an awful white supremacist. Oh, you're horrible. Come on, say it. Put up the pride flag. Come on, just do it. Celebrate Gay Pride Month, or you're a bigot. Oh, no. I'm not saved by works. I'm not saved by Moses' works. I'm not saved by the works Jesus commanded me to do. And I'm certainly not saved by the perverted rainbow flag. Salvation, no. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. This is God's intention, the way God phrases it in the scriptures, in order that no man should boast. This is God's goal, to strip the works away from us, strips the boasting away from us. Where then is boasting, the apostle asks. Romans 3, 27. It is excluded by what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Faith tells you you have nothing to boast about. Faith says you must trust all of your righteousness to be in Jesus alone. Faith says all you have are empty hands, and those empty hands God gave you by raising you from the dead. Where's your credit? Where's your boasting? Where's your power? You have none. That's called the gospel. You trust in Jesus' power. You trust in his work. You trust in his salvation, not in yourself. That's what Paul's saying. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Ah, the Jew comes. You see, when you say it's not of works, you contradict Moses. And also, you're going to make people live evil lives. They won't obey God's commandments. If you don't hold out the carrot, you can't be saved unless you do these good works. Who's going to do any good works? Verse 10 answers. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Who gets the credit for this? God again. He predestined these works. He created us unto good works. This word is very interesting. When it says that we are his workmanship, the word there is poema. Does that sound familiar? Like a poem? A poet is a person who creates of their own self and their own mental powers a written something. Usually it rhymes in English. Other languages it might not rhyme in the words of it, but it might rhyme in the thoughts of it. That's a poet. He creates it of his own powers. Who created us? God did. We are his workmanship. We're his poem. By the power of his hand, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Not by good works. Not on the ground of your good works. But so that after he has saved and called you by his grace... You should live in good works. This is the answer to the Jew who says, no, you've got to mix in. I'm, I'm, I'm saying Jew is a uh, genetic thing. Jews in their faith. There are Christianized Jews. You know that. 
Oh, you can't just say that we're justified by faith alone. You've got to add works in there. Those are Jews. They may not say, I'm a Jew, just like the Jews that crucified Jesus, but that's exactly what they are. We are saved by God's grace alone, through the empty hands of faith, laying hold on the righteousness of Christ. And then God says, I have good works I've prepared for you. I have a pathway. This is my covenant. Remember that in Deuteronomy 17? The one who transgresses his covenant? He doesn't want to walk on God's path, but God says, I have a path for you. You're going to walk on it. I've created you with this intention in mind, renewed you in my image. This cuts the Gordian knot between legalism and antinomianism. The legalist says, I must be justified by something I do. And the antinomian says, well, I'm justified by grace alone so I can live however I please. And God says, you are justified by faith alone in my son alone, not by anything you do unto good works. It cuts that knot and it brings us into a wholesome appreciation for God's great grace and his holy commandments. Verses 11 through 22, we have the alien Gentiles, now fellow citizens of the commonwealth by the blood of Christ. I'll try to be quick here. We have the times past when we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, verse 12 tells us. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. This is the word xenoi, those who are foreigners, those who are outsiders. God had all these covenants. You remember all the promises he made? I will be God to thee and to thy children. Remember that to Abraham, right? And then he fulfilled it in the days of Moses. And then in the days of David, he said, your sons will sit upon the throne and that I will be their God and they will be my son. I will have one of your sons for my son, David. Covenants of promise after promise after promise we used to be foreigners to those covenants, he says. That was the condition of a Gentile, having no hope and without God in the world, hope emphatically not having, that's how he puts it, and atheoi, atheists, without God. God didn't mean anything to you. You who sometimes were afar off, he said, are made nigh. God brought us near. Again, this is God's work, monergism. How did he do it? By the blood of Christ. New Testament believers then, whether Jew or Gentile, are in fact the true Jews. Not the Jews who crucified Jesus. Not the Christianized Jews who would crucify him if he showed up today. But the true Israel of God, those who are made partakers of the commonwealth of Israel, those who are brought near by the blood of Christ to all the covenants of promise, that is Christians. We are not foreigners. We are not aliens. We are not atheists. We are brought near by the blood of Christ, the true sons of Abraham, the true heirs of that testament. And he is our peace who hath made both one, verse 14 tells us who? Christ is our peace. He made peace with God. He made peace with Jew and Gentile in one body. I note then that in Christ Jesus, the national ethnic distinctions of the Old Testament are broken down. This middle wall of partition or separation or segregation in the church of Jesus Christ 
once of one nation alone, we now have all nations called to the fellowship of his son. Let us be wary, though, when we hear these words, the wicked will say, oh, well, that means in civil matters, there's no such thing as a border. There's no such thing as a wall of distinction. All nations are one, dude. Let's all come together and smoke weed. No. The social gospel takes what is true in the church and in the gospel and says, well, that's a rule for civil government too, isn't it? No. In the gospel, can an idolater or an adulterer or a murderer be forgiven? Yeah. In the gospel, you can have your sins wiped away. You can be accepted at the Lord's table as a repentant murderer. What about in the state? If I say, I'm sorry, I killed all those people, what should the magistrate say? Praise God, you repented of your sins. Now let's arrange for your hanging. That's what the magistrate should say. God, have mercy on your soul is what they used to say, and they meant it. And they would send a pastor to bring the gospel to you so that you could repent of your sins before you got hung. But they're not going to say, well, you know, social gospel, we got to let him go free. He said he was sorry. Yeah, he said he's sorry. He can be forgiven by God. He can still go to heaven, but he has to pay the penalty for his crime. So we're not saying that God erases the distinction between nations or the proper government of each commonwealth and somehow blends us all into one simply because he's done that in the church. No, we don't believe that in the least. But God, in the gospel, in the body of Jesus Christ, in his church, the enmity, the law of commandments that said, you Jews are a holy people separate from everybody else. Therefore, do these things. Don't eat this. Go here. Do this. Wear this. Don't wear that. All those distinctions nailed to the cross. Why? So that he could make of twain one body in Jesus Christ And through Jesus Christ, we would all have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Notice the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's through Christ, our mediator, in one Spirit, we have access to one Father. We are therefore all united in Jesus Christ. And notice this last thing, verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here he shifts the analogy from a family united together to now a building. We're like a building, he says. We're built together. Peter says we're like living stones built upon that wall. What's the foundation? Well, the apostles and the prophets. Their writings, in other words, the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. We have this firm foundation and both the Old Testament and the New Testament, what do they lean on? Well, he says, Christ is the chief cornerstone. The whole Bible points us to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. The whole scripture says, do not rely on men, rely on Jesus Christ. Moses spoke of Christ. Moses prophesied of Christ. Moses was a type of Christ, and he preached the gospel of Christ as well. So we as Christians are built upon the Bible. We are the walls of God's living stones built upon this foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ, our chief cornerstone. And thus far the explanation of Ephesians chapter 2.